Well, as many of you know, I absolutely love Christian biographies. And I just recently finished one on William Grimshaw, who started out as a terribly ungodly man. In fact, by his own confession, he learned to drink and swear and became as vile as the worst of them, which was confirmed by a close friend who said bad examples and bad company prevailed to seduce him, and having no moral root in himself, the torrent of ungodliness carried him oh so far away, which apparently included going into the ministry even though he was clearly an unbeliever. But it did mean that he had a job. So in 1732, age 23, Grimshaw was ordained to the ministry in the Church of England. And his plan, listen to his plan, I'm quoting him here, his plan was to refrain as much as possible from gross swearing, unless in suitable company. And then when he did get drunk, which he did often, to sleep it off before going home or before going to church to preach. My point, William Grimshaw was an utterly ungodly man. Selfish, self-consumed, and living for the world until God got a hold of his life through a number of different means, including a local itinerant preacher. Itinerant means he traveled all over the place. So a local itinerant preacher by the name of Benjamin Inham would regularly confront him, literally walk up to him in the middle of town and say to him, tap him on the shoulder, Mr. Grimshaw, you are no believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are building your life on the sand. And this happened so often that Grimshaw was terrified of anyone walking up behind him who matched that description. But Ingham also pleaded with Grimshaw that he might be reconciled to God, that he might know the love of God available to him through faith in the Lord Jesus and experience God's mercy and God's grace, God's kindness and generosity so he might have God not as a condemning judge, but as his loving, heavenly father, which he did. 1742, age 34. 11 years he was an unbeliever preaching. But after he came to faith, he was used by God in a mighty way for the next 20 years of his life in a scarcely known little village called Haworth, which literally became one of the epicenters of Christian revival and Christian influence in all of England. But my point here is the connection between the work that God did in Grimshaw's life and the work that God did through Grimshaw's life. Because Grimshaw experienced God's love, so he quickly offered God's love. He knew God's mercy, God's grace, his forgiveness, his generosity, and all that God had done for him through Christ to reconcile him to the Father. And so he quickly offered all of that, literally to everyone he knew, far and wide, day in and day out, throughout all of England. In fact, the end of Grimshaw's biography is by far my favorite. 
because it's one account after another of this glorious connection. Grimshaw himself saying, what is genuine Christian love but love to God resulting from his love first to me? But others confirmed it. 20 years after he died, elderly people were still declaring that Grimshaw was so generous. Example after example. Why? Because he was overwhelmed by God's generosity to him. And he would plead with people constantly, be reconciled to God. Why? Because he had experienced such a glorious reconciliation. And he desperately wanted that for others. But do you understand? That's how God designed it to be, right? Jesus says in Matthew 10:8, freely you received, freely give. Which is the exact same connection we're going to see in our passage this morning. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's on page 964 in one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to grab your Bible. I encourage you to grab my outline. If you have your Bible open and your outline in your Bible, you're in great shape this morning. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die this morning. Reason number five, to reconcile us to God, which in turn results in the ministry of reconciliation so that others might be reconciled to God. But this pattern... I would suggest, is all over the New Testament, including 2 Corinthians. So point number one, the context of reconciliation. I want you to see just how consistent this pattern is. That God first does a work in our lives, and then he calls and commands us to do that good work in other people's lives. Starting with A, comforted to comfort. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 to 7. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as soon, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, do you see how obvious the connection is? Because God is the one who first comforts us in all of our affliction, meaning first and foremost, he saved us from our sin. That's our greatest affliction, so that the comfort of being reconciled to God would be first be ours. But God does that so much more than that, doesn't he? Because he comforts us even in our affliction, so that even when we share the good news of the gospel with others and we're persecuted for it, they might experience the comfort of being reconciled to God and in turn be comforted in their affliction even as they share the gospel with others. But the point is clear, isn't it? God has comforted us so that we might be a comfort for others, both in salvation and in sanctification. So A, comforted to comfort. Now B, unveiled to unveil. If you would, just flip forward to chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 12. Again, I'm just making this pattern clear for you as we make it 
to our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. But now 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, Paul says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were darkened, for to this day, when they, write, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Why is it unlifted? He says, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but one, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the pattern is exactly the same, right? Paul's just using a different analogy. What's the analogy? It's having the veil of our hearts lifted so that we might see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, which happens, look at verse 16, when a person turns to the Lord, when they put their faith in Christ, Paul says the veil is lifted. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So the eyes of the heart that were once blind, can now see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Then what happens? Well, look at what Paul says, chapter 4, verse 1, 1 to 6. He says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, what's the ministry? Well, it's the ministry of unveiling, right? Verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or notice to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Again, do you see the connection? Because first God gives us eyes to see. He unveils our hearts so that we might believe in Jesus. But then he gives us the ministry of unveiling so that other people's hearts might be unveiled, that they might see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And please don't miss verse 2 because that's all done according to God's word. And verse 5, that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. So we're just ambassadors for Jesus' sake, sent on a mission to share the good news of the gospel that we ourselves first received. That's number one, the context of reconciliation. That there's this constant, consistent, repeated connection all the way through the New Testament and especially in 2 Corinthians that God first has to do a good work in our lives, but then he calls and commands us to do the exact same work in other people's lives. Which brings us to number two, the reality of reconciliation. Flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Allow me to read... Verses 10 to 21. Follow along as I read. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... I'm sorry, I'm in verse 11. Verse 10, here we go. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I want you to notice how the main point is right here in verses 18 and 19. It's the main point of this entire section. So it's the exact same connection Paul's been making the entire time in 2 Corinthians. How first God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, but as a result has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, which he clarifies, verse 19, that in Christ God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You also see it in verse 15, that Christ died for all, meaning all those who believe in him, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it's the exact same connection, that we've been reconciled to God so that we might proclaim the message of reconciliation to others. But I want to argue this morning that the motivation, that the passion, the zeal, the willingness, and the eagerness to carry out point number three in your outline, the ministry of reconciliation, is directly related to how well you really, truly understand point number two, the reality of reconciliation. So let's drill down there to start, starting with A, the reality that Adam's sin is what separates us from God. I mean, we all know the story of Genesis, don't we? That God created this glorious paradise called the Garden of Eden, where all was well and the world was as it should be. God walking in the cool of the day, fellowship with his creation, total harmony, complete unity, perfect fellowship, right? All was well and as it should be. It was perfect paradise. Until what? Until Adam sinned. And Adam and Eve were immediately kicked out of the garden. Why were they kicked out of the garden? Because God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. 
So you have to be crystal clear. Sin is what separates us from a holy God. And Adam's sin is imputed to every single one of us. So we're born in sin as sinners, and we sin because we're sinners in Adam. So we don't become sinners when we sin. No, we're born in sin, Adam's sin, and we sin because we're sinners. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, do you realize that there's not a single parent in the world who needs to teach their kids to say, mine? Right? We have to teach our kids to say words like, please, and thank you. And if we get them to say that, At two years old, we spend the next 16 years trying to get them to believe what they're saying. (laughs) Right? But we don't have to teach them to say mine. Right? I mean, you, you go over to somebody's house and you see this angelic little creature moving around. So beautiful. So innocent. Until you walk up to play with them and you go to grab that little toy and they go, evil, mine. We don't have to teach our kids to have a bad attitude. We don't have to teach them to hoard their toys. We don't have to teach them to hit or to steal or to throw a temper tantrum. Here's how you do it. When you get mad, you just flop on the ground and wail around. Nope, they do that naturally. That all comes very natural. Why is that? Because they're sinners in Adam. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, Unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So that is God's wrath for all eternity. God's wrath as a result of our sin. So again, absolutely critical to understand because you can't really appreciate being reconciled to God until you first get a hold of what it means to be separated from God, which means there's enmity and God's wrath is rightly, justly against you. Now, I do want you to know this morning, I totally understand and I fully appreciate that God's wrath is not a very popular subject nowadays. In fact, it's hard to find a person who will preach on it. And yet, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the frequency and the fervency with which both the Old Testament and the New Testament emphasize the horror of God's wrath. In fact, you could say the Bible labors to point out that God is good to those who trust him, that he's merciful and kind, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But the Bible also labors 
with just as much consistency, clarity, and conviction that God's wrath is on those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to feel that this morning. I want you to feel the weight of God's wrath. The horror of God's wrath. The terror of what it must be like to be separated from God for all eternity. Because even as Paul's writing 2 Corinthians 5, his complete expectation is that Jesus will one day return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel, that they will be punished with eternal, everlasting destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you feel what I'm saying? That's enmity. That's wrath. That's what it means, ultimately, that Adam's sin separates us from a holy God. Now again, let me be clear. Why spend so much time on God's wrath? Well, because that's the only way to ever appreciate the glory of Christ's finished work on the cross, his death and resurrection that was totally sufficient to reconcile us back to God. That's point B in your outline. Christ's death reconciles us. So if you would follow along again as we walk through some of the points that Paul makes, right? I'm not arguing this whole passage. I'm just trying to pick up the brief statements that he makes to explain these things as he's working his way through this text. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this. We've, we've thought about it, we've weighed and measured, and we've concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our salvation secured. How? Through Christ's death and his resurrection. Because for our sake he died, and for our sake he was raised. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number five, to reconcile us to God. Here it is again, verse 18. Look at verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And how is all of that possible? I'm glad that you asked. Paul answers that question. Look at verse 21. He says, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's the Lord Jesus. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Because that's the only way for us to be reconciled to God. I mean, I've already argued that we're all sinners in Adam, and therefore we all deserve God's wrath. 
But here's the explanation for how we might be reconciled to God, how we might be restored to the God who we've sinned against. And I think the best way to think about it is is through the lens of a courtroom. Because every time we sin, we're breaking God's law. So for every violation, every transgression, every offense, every infraction and disobedience, there's a penalty that we have to pay. And the problem is, of course, we're sinning against God on a daily basis. So the debt is constantly growing. It's constantly moving up. Every day, every hour, every time that we sin against God, that's a penalty and a price that we have to pay. In fact, that's why Jesus likens it to an unpayable amount of money, millions of dollars, in the parable of the unmerciful servant. So the only way to be reconciled to God is to look to someone outside of ourselves who's willing to pay that debt for us. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because if we have this massive penalty to pay and somebody actually pays it for us, then we're only back to neutral. But what we actually need, at least from a moral standpoint, is to have money in the bank, right? We can't just go from negative to neutral. We need money in the bank. But do you see, those are the two parts of the transaction that Paul is highlighting in verse 21. That Jesus not only takes our accumulated accumulated astronomical, absolutely unpayable debt upon himself, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, but he also gives us the righteousness that we absolutely need in order to be in God's presence for all eternity. And don't miss this because that's the righteousness of God himself so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, which is incredible. I mean, just think about that for a moment because reconciliation has everything to do with relationships, right? That's why the Bible says when we put our faith in Christ, we're adopted into God's family, But verse 21 clarifies exactly how that works because Christ's righteousness actually becomes our righteousness because we become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, in the one who paid our debt. So everything that's true about Jesus becomes true about us, including our relationship with God. He's no longer our judge, who rightly condemns us. He becomes our loving, heavenly Father. Our relationship with God is the same as Jesus' relationship with God because we become the righteousness of God in Him. So our relationship is restored. It's 100% redeemed. And I just want you to soak that in. That's glorious news. Because if your faith is in Christ, then God is no longer your judge. He's your father. He delights in you. He rejoices in you. He's 100% pleased with you. I mean, do you understand the significance of that? That Christians 
are truly God's children. We're sons and daughters of the Most High King. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty or the danger of drawing near to God, but instead on the boldness and the confidence with which we have total access to him. Right? He, he's now our lovingly, our loving father. He's, he's got open hands and he's saying, come, be with me. I delight in you. You're the apple of my eye. No longer wrath, reconciliation. Because we become the righteousness of God in Christ. Romans 8, 15 says, Believers have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the relationship we now have with the creator and sustainer of the world. So rather than fearing him as judge who rightly condemns us, we cry out to him as dad with all the love and affection, care and compassion, concern and closeness that comes with that relationship. So we speak to him. We relate to him. We interact with him as our loving father, which absolutely changes everything, just like Paul highlights in verse 17. Right? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's absolutely right, right? Because, see, true faith transforms us. But I want to frame this in light of what Paul says in verse 18, that all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because that's the transformation that should naturally take place. Look at it again. Please look at it again. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, doesn't skip a beat, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the transformation that should naturally take place. That because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, we should be absolutely motivated, inspired, esteemed. We should be absolutely zealous to carry out point three in our outline, the ministry of reconciliation. That's the main point of this entire passage. That we've been given this glorious ministry of reconciliation. But before we go there, I just want to make sure you're seeing the reality of reconciliation as the greatest motivation you could ever be given. Brothers and sisters, listen to me when I say Jesus came to die so that you might be reconciled to God. You're reconciled. Feel the distance. Wrath for all eternity. Reconciliation, right relationship for all eternity. That distance should change everything. Now, do you know why I love William Grimshaw so much? It's because he got this 
connection. That being reconciled to God is what needs to motivate absolutely everything that we do. In fact, in his biography, there's an account of a woman who got terribly sick at Grimshaw's house. Somebody got terribly sick at your house. What would happen? What would you do? You'd call an ambulance. You, you would get them out of your house, right? They're sick. What am I going to do? Do you know what happened in Grimshaw's house? She got terribly sick, so he cared for her for six months. That's incredible. That's transformation. Took care of her for six months, which means that she got to see his life played out day after day after day. Six months. Here's her account. She says, he would often say, I love my God and Savior, but how shall I love him enough? That's what he'd often say. I love my God and Savior, but how shall I love him enough? And she has an account that only at the mention of God's name, at the reconciliation that was his in the Lord Jesus Christ, he would stand still, overwhelmed by grace, for 10 minutes. At the mention of God's name and the reality that he had been reconciled to him, Grimshaw would stop what he's doing and he would stand there for 10 minutes. And he would let that glorious truth wash over him. I just want to tell you, I think the devil's having a field day with us in the United States. We don't pause for 10 seconds. You've been reconciled to God. How would life change if you just soaked on that every day? After Grimshaw would stand there for 10 minutes, he would say, what shall I do? What can I do to love and serve my God? better. That was the result. Ten minutes delighting in being reconciled to God, and he would declare, six months, she's watching this, what shall I do? What, what can I do? He's not earning his salvation. He's glorying in his salvation, and he's asking, what shall I do? What can I do to love and serve my God better? Is that you this morning? Does the reality that you've been reconciled to God motivate everything else that you do? 
Are you compelled by it? Are you controlled by it? Does the love of Christ, meaning Christ's love for you first and then your love in response, frame all that you do? Is it the fuel that drives the locomotive of your life, sets the direction, the pace, and pulls all of the rest of the cars of your life? The end of Grimshaw's life, he said, I cannot do enough for Christ who has done so much for me. I hope and pray you feel that way. That, that's my goal and point too. I, I, I want you to feel that. I want you to know the weight of that as we transition to point three, the ministry of reconciliation. As I said earlier, that's the main point of this entire section. The reality that those who have been reconciled to God first, glorying in that reality, have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which looks like something. In fact, Paul gives us some pretty specific direction as we skip through these verses again and highlight the direct application. So if you would look at what he says in verses 10 to 11. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So reason number one to share Christ is knowing the fear of the Lord. And there's obviously two kinds of fear going on here, isn't there? Because there's the fear of the Lord from a Christian perspective, which I want to refer to as a holy fear. That is a reverence, a respect, a recognition that God has done everything necessary for your salvation and therefore calls you to live for his glory, including sharing the gospel. So there's a holy fear that we as believers should feel because we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done with our lives, whether good or worthless, useful or squandered. That's why Paul says in verse 9, we make it our aim to please Christ. So there's a holy fear from a Christian perspective, right? But there's also a dreadful fear. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's a fear we should absolutely feel because unbelievers will also have to give an account at the end of their lives. So the difference on the day of judgment for the Christian and the non-Christian is radically different. It's not just a little bit different. It is radically different. The Christian will be judged, not losing their salvation, but on whether their deeds were good or worthless. But the non-Christian will be judged for eternity. Those who don't believe the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction. So both fears... Paul says, a holy fear and a dreadful fear should drive us to persuade others and plead with others to believe in Jesus so that they might be reconciled to God. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, then let them perish 
with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and be reconciled to God. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one person go unwarned and unprayed for. Is that your orientation to the lost? Are you pleading with them to be reconciled to God? Do they have to leap over your dead body? Are your arms wrapped around their knees? Are you doing everything you can to persuade them to believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God for all eternity? Or are you nowhere to be found? I pray that God would give us a holy fear and a dreadful fear of judgment so that we might actually start pleading with unbelievers to be reconciled to God. Reason number one to share Christ. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Reason number two, knowing the love of Christ, we live no longer for ourselves but for the Lord. Look again at what he says in verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the love of Christ controls us. The reality that Jesus willingly died on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God for all eternity, Paul's saying, should govern absolutely everything that we do. Meaning we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who saved us. What exactly does it mean to live for Christ? Well, in this context, it at least means embracing this ministry of reconciliation. And not just when you feel like it or when it's convenient for you or when it fits into your schedule. Look, when can I put in the ministry of schedule? Oh, reconciliation doesn't work again. This worked. No, no, no. Next week is booked. Maybe I'll work at the ministry of reconciliation. Well, maybe. I think August looks good. I think I'll put Tuesday 8 to 8.15. Not when it fits your schedule. Not just when you feel like it. Paul uses words like persuade, appeal, and implore. Right? That's not when you feel like it. That's not no big deal. That's not flippant. Those are words that require action. They're words that require urgency, passion, zeal. We have zeal all over the place. We have the ability to persuade. It's not like we don't have that gear. We have that gear. About all sorts of things. What do you think it looks like to persuade someone? Think about your favorite food. I did this little test yesterday to some of the people in our congregation. It's incredible to me how quickly we have this gear. We moved to this gear. Right, I, just, I just texted somebody and I said, 
Where is the best place to get pizza? Pepe's Pizza in New Haven. Hey, they're open right now. Here's the directions you should go. Best pizza. Oh, get this pizza. It's absolutely awesome. Are you going to get pizza? I'll go with you to get pizza. It's the best pizza in the world. Hey, also the phone rings. Persuading me. Don't go somewhere else. I got a text message that said, where do you get pizza? I put Domino's. They, that's ridiculous. Pepe's Pizza, New Haven. Get in the car. <laughs> Donuts. I'm not naming names here, by the way, so you don't need to be afraid. I did do this. This is your pastor. This is what I do. <laughs> Best place to get donuts. Beach Donut Shop in Clinton. I kid you not. I got directions. I also got instructions that you need to call ahead because they sell out quickly. You need to request this specific donuts. Have them put it aside. Pay with your credit card so that they're still there. Otherwise, they're gone. Go now persuading me immediately, best donuts. Do I need to say more? How about Johnsonville Brats from Wisconsin? I'm just as susceptible to this, right? By the way, those are the best brats. What else are you eating? Don't put anything else on your grill, right? We labor, we argue, we give reasons, we appeal. Why? Because we love it and we're passionate about it. But for some reason, we're more willing to persuade a person to eat our favorite food or donut or pizza or brat than we are for them to believe in Jesus. So that they might be reconciled to God, not God's wrath, but reconciliation for all eternity. Something's wrong with that. You know, maybe a better illustration is watching a man who is clearly intoxicated getting into his car to drive home. How would you approach that? You're out for dinner with your wife, friends, walk out of the place, walking around, and there's a guy who's stumbling around. He, drops his keys, unlocks his car, there's nobody else with him. You don't know this guy, never met this guy. What do you do then? You walk away? You would not walk away. Not, I don't believe a single one of you would walk away. Right? You, you, you would appeal to this guy. You would engage the situation. You're not letting him get in his car. Why? Because you know it's certain destruction. You know what's coming. He might hurt himself or he might hurt other people. You would stop him. How would you appeal to him? You'd appeal with such passion that no is not an option. Wouldn't you? Zeal, urgency. You'd engage the situation. Eternal damnation is coming. That's what we're talking about for people in your lives. We have to engage. We have to plead. We have to appeal. That's the ministry that God has given us 
to do. But be clear, it's not just the fear of the coming judgment that causes us to have this resilience in sharing Christ. It's also the awesomeness of experiencing God's love for the love of Christ controls us. So the reality of God's mercy and grace, his kindness and compassion, how he's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. He's willing to forgive as far as the east is from the west. You're not just warning them, you're appealing to them. This is so much better. Jesus is better. Be reconciled to God. So if the reality of hell and the truth of God's love are the reasons why we're sharing, then how could we not engage with such passion and such zeal and such urgency so as to persuade, appeal, and plead with people. Which brings us to be Paul's desire to help us see people differently. Look at what he says in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So one of the byproducts of knowing the fear of the Lord and knowing the love of Christ that motivates you to persuade people to be reconciled to God is that we no longer see people simply as physical beings. But instead, we look through spiritual eyes and we see people as spiritual beings who are in a desperately needy spiritual condition. But let me just warn you. Because when you look with spiritual eyes, your heart will break over the amount of people who are lost and going to hell when they die. Right now in the state of Connecticut, the current statistics say at least 96% of the population are rejecting the gospel and the reconciliation that's available only in Jesus. What does that mean for you and I? It means that we live in a spiritual graveyard. And it will remain a spiritual graveyard unless we start sharing the good news of the gospel with them, persuading, appealing, pleading for people to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. So the application here is to not just look at people as people, but to start seeing them through the lens of the gospel. So, so rather than seeing someone as an annoying co-worker, does anybody come to your mind? Rather than just seeing them as an annoying co-worker, that these are, these are real people with real souls, with real eternal well-being at stake. You hear what I'm saying? Rather than seeing them as an annoying co-worker, you start to see them as someone who desperately needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than seeing someone as a loudmouth jerk, you see them as someone who will experience eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might unless he repents, unless he believes the gospel. And rather than seeing the opportunity to sign up as a local coach in the community or a tutor with the school system or a chaplain in the Air National Guard as not a good use of my time, you start seeing it as time well spent investing in the eternal well-being of people who would never, ever in a million years darken the door 
of a church. That view has to be cultivated. That doesn't come naturally to us. That has to be cultivated. Which brings us to our closing application. See the call to be ambassadors. Paul says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What exactly does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Well, we get a very helpful clue halfway through verse 20 when Paul says we implore you. How do we implore you on behalf of Christ? Be reconciled to God. So an ambassador has someone in authority over them. When they're sent, because they have an authority, they're not negotiating. When they're sent, they go. But when they go, they go on behalf of that authority. So they represent the one who sent them. In this case, we represent the Lord Jesus. And on behalf of his authority, we're called and commissioned to plead with people to be reconciled to God. Do you understand that I've been called and commissioned according to the word of God to plead with you this morning? Some of you sit here and you say, I'm totally fine. You don't need to plead with me. Let it go. Some of you hear me do this every Sunday and you just hope it goes quickly. And you understand, you work hard to not even feel conviction. You want that gone. But I'm called, commissioned, to plead with you. That if you stand outside of faith in Christ, when you die, you will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a lie of the devil. You just want to think that you're going to be fine. In your heart of hearts, you're not fine. If your faith is not in Christ, then you're going to be sentenced to eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So I'm here to plead with you. This might be your first time at proclamation. You got up this morning, you said, what should I do? I think I'll go to proclamation. Why would you do that? I know why you do that. God, sovereign over all things, brings you here so that I can plead with you on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. I am not pleading with you to be reconciled to me. I'm pleading with you through the work of Christ to be reconciled to God because of his finished work on the cross. I'm just an ambassador. But there's only one way for you to be reconciled to God for all eternity, and that's through faith in his son, his finished work, the willingness that he has to take your sin on himself and pay the penalty that you rightly deserve, God's wrath, and give you the righteousness that you don't. So you can be in his presence for all eternity, fullness of joy, pleasures forever 
more. God's wrath, him as judge, reconciliation, him as father. I plead with you. Put your faith in Christ. Be reconciled to God. And how about you, dear believer? Are you pleading with the people in your life on behalf of Christ for them to be reconciled to God? I mean, God has given you a very unique circle of influence, right? There's, there's people in your life that are not in my life. You have a specific circle of influence. You have your family members. I have my family members. You have your coworkers. I have my coworkers. You have a unique circle of influence that God has given to you. And I'm asking you, are there people in that circle of influence right now who still need to be reconciled to God? Do you know them? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Do you care about them? Do you want what's best for them? Do you desire for them to come to Christ? Of course you do. They're in your life. You love them. You care for them. Well, then you're going to need to start pleading with them. God's given you a ministry of reconciliation. And he calls and he commands. The love of Christ controls you. So you appeal. You plead with them. That's what he's called you to do. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just don't feel confident enough to share the gospel with someone. You don't feel like you have that kind of clarity. That's nothing to be shamed about, but it's also nothing to be celebrated, and it's certainly nothing to sit in. I don't want you to sit in that. He doesn't allow you to sit in that. You know, I appreciate cars and trucks right? I appreciate cars and trucks very much, and I certainly enjoy using them. I love driving my car. I love driving my truck. But I can't explain to you a single thing about how the motor works. I couldn't tell you any of that to save my life. But I will tell you this, if I was hired as an ambassador for General Motors, you better believe I'd work as hard as possible to learn how engines work. I, I, I would want to know all the details, and I would love to know that for myself. Why? So that I could explain that to other people, so that they might know as well. You're an ambassador from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're sent on a mission. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. He's given you a unique circle of influence, and he calls and he commands for you to appeal and to plead with people to put their faith in Christ so they might be reconciled to God. And so we need to learn, don't we? Because it's time. Boy, boy, is it time. We live in a very difficult time. I'm sure every generation feels that way, but boy, oh boy, does it seem like it's a difficult time. 
people coming after us for what we believe, well, I suggest it's time. And we need to be equipped. We need to see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ so that we might appeal to people for them to be reconciled to God. It's time. It's time for you to learn how to patiently explain the good news of the gospel to others. It's time to answer their questions. It's time to persuade them about the truth of the Bible. It's time to kindly yet firmly plead for their souls. It's time to warn them about the reality of the wrath to come. It's time to appeal to them, to plead with them, to put their faith in Christ so that they can be reconciled to God. It's time. William Grimshaw once said, When I die, I shall then have my greatest grief and my greatest joy. My greatest grief will be that I have done so little for the Lord Jesus Christ. And my greatest joy will be that Jesus has done so much for me. May God give us the grace to have that glorious biblical perspective on how we live our lives for our good, for our neighbor's good, and for the glory of our great God. Let me pray. Father, such a good word for us this morning, such a good word for me this morning. Father, I pray that we would glory in the reality that we have been reconciled to God for all eternity. Father, I pray for any of my dear friends here this morning who have not yet put their faith in Christ, that you would do a good work in their minds and in their hearts. That they would recognize there is a wrath to come. And they would recognize currently they have God as their judge. But because of Christ's finished work on the cross, they can have God as their loving Heavenly Father do a good work here this morning that they would repent and believe in Jesus. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would know that we are reconciled to God. I pray that there's not a single believer here this morning who feels guilted into sharing the gospel but instead would be overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace to us, that, that, that the reality that we're reconciled to God would be the motivation for us to share with others, that we would see him differently, that we would see from the gospel point of view, that we would have spiritual eyes to see their reality. I pray that we would see our reality as ambassadors, Father, that we might engage, that we might persuade, that we might appeal. And Father, we pray that many would come to faith, that your name might be glorified. You are worthy of our worship and our praise. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.